Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, take your Bibles and go to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. This is such a potent chapter. We've looked at it a couple of different weeks in the first two sections of the chapter, and today we culminate this chapter. And I want to talk to you today about religion that kills relationship. Religion that kills relationship. This chapter concludes with this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. I mean, this is spiritual warfare with skin and bones is what this is, friends. And this is so important for us. You know, this isn't a fairy tale of warriors versus demagogues. You know, this isn't a fairy tale that's been created and Marvel and DC are fighting for the rights to produce it, right? Marvel and DC dream of a script with this kind of impact, but will never attain to it. This is a war that transcends the ages. Righteousness walks into the midst of wickedness, and wickedness can do nothing about it. That's what's taking place here. Good is defeating evil. Righteousness is crushing wickedness. This is the war of the heavenlies for eternal glory and for the human soul. And this, friends, is the battle that determines the war. That's where we are at the end of John chapter 11. What I want, to see, uh, I want us to see today is simply this, that Jesus is the Lamb of God crucified to become the cornerstone of life with God. Jesus is the Lamb of God crucified to become the cornerstone of life with God. Let's begin in the text. Verse 45 through the end of the chapter is where we'll be today. Verse 45, John says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. There's always that one in the class, isn't there? Going to run to the teacher every time and wipe the brown off of their nose. Here's what we see. Jesus has been working and people are believing. He encounters Martha and then he encounters Mary. And through those encounters, he encounters a larger number of the Jews who witness these encounters. And he teaches that in the midst of life, he is the power of God's resurrection. And he is the life with God. He's not the source of life with God, but more than that, he is life with God. And that's where we pick up here today. The pattern and the purpose of Jesus' work on the earth was that he would reveal himself, his glory and majesty displayed, that others might believe in him. And many do believe in him. But believe doesn't always happen when Jesus is working. There are imposters in this world. There always have been. And there will never cease to be as long as we are in this world. But that's never a reason for us to dismiss kingdom work that God is doing in our midst. 
You see, friend, true belief demonstrated through brokenness and confession and repentance of sin, that's coupled immediately with the peace from God and the love of God and the joy of God filling our life that produces a faith-fueled obedience. That is what evidences Jesus' work. And where we see this and where we find this, we are to treasure this work that we might cultivate it more and more, laboring for all to believe, even though we know there will be some who run to the teacher, if you will, to tattle to the religious leaders. You see, friends, when Jesus is exalted, people are drawn to him because he's working. We don't bring people to Jesus we're encouragers and we're, we're directors and pointers, but, but it's God. It's the work of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit illuminating the word who is life. That's, that's the work of God. Man does not save. And any of our participation in the saving work of God is but, but a sidebar at best. It is God who works to bring people to himself. And he works when Jesus is exalted. And people see who they are in light of who God is. And recognize their need for him. When Jesus is exalted, people are drawn to him because God is working. But not all believe. And friends, listen, there's no neutral ground with Jesus. There's not those who believe, those who don't believe, and those who are trying to figure it out. That's what we try to create, that gray area in between. With God, there is belief and unbelief. And what we see in verses 47 to 50, unbelief is always working very near to where Christ is being exalted. Look at verse 47 with me. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. <gasps> and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Pause there for a moment. The chief priest and the Pharisees. Now, the chief priests were an elevated or an ascended faction within the Pharisees. In other words, they were the rulers of the Pharisees and ultimately the rulers of the Jewish people because of that position. And they recognized Jesus' signs. Hey, he's doing a lot of good stuff, a lot of signs that are, that are worthy, but this is problematic for them. Again, God is working, and that is problematic for those who claim to be God's representatives. You see the irony in this, right? But they asked the wrong question. You see, their question was okay. But they asked it in the wrong way with an intent to protect what they had instead of receiving what God was revealing. Religion always resorts to fear-mongering, friends. And fear-mongering always presumes the answer instead of seeking the meaning that God has in the revelation. 
And the chief priests and the Pharisees in this passage, they represent religion in every negative sense to us. Because what we see them doing is opposing the work of God. The very ones who should have been interpreting and showing people the work of God as he was revealing them. How generous of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. Interestingly enough, there was a high priest emeritus who happened to be Caiaphas' father-in-law. You can see how the, the shall we say, nepotism was ruling the, uh, the authoritative structure even within uh, the, the, um, uh, the pharisaical uh, uh, power structure. And, and so here's what he said. He says this, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. How how important and accurate his words, if only what he said meant what his heart intended. And what did he mean and what did he say? Well, that's what John explains for us in verse 51 to 53. Look what John says. He, speaking of Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Listen, what John is doing is he's explaining how God is revealing Jesus And how the high priest and the Pharisees are working feverishly to cover him up. God prophesies through Caiaphas, the high priest, that one would die for the people. How does this come about? How is it that he came to this recognition, to be able to state this kind of a revelation? Well, the high priest wore the ephod. And in the tradition of the Jews, the ephod was the covering that he wore. And he always carried the Urim and the Thummim with him. Basically, two sticks, if you will, by which would be cast. And in the casting of those sticks, they would understand that the will of God would be discerned. In other words, the the way that they used these were that God had appointed the Urim and the Thummim as instruments to reveal his will to the people. And what had taken place was that Caiaphas had used the Urim and the Thummim, and this prophecy had come from God. But instead of taking it as the revelation of God and acclimating and orienting all of life and the practice of their religion to it, they said, oh, this is a message from God that we can use for our own good, for our own profit. And that's what they did. They used it for their purpose to satisfy the Roman authorities. Why would they have to satisfy the Roman authorities? Well, in the the, uh, political and cultural structure of that day, the Jews were allowed, because they had been conquered by the Romans, the Romans would come in and with their bad dudes walking around and carrying their spears, they would not interfere with Jewish life as long as Jewish life didn't interfere with the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But when this uproar would happen and people would clash and tensions publicly would arise, that would arouse the attention of the Roman guards and the Roman rulers. And what the Pharisees are saying is, as long as we can offer up 
uh, uh, shall we say, one who would die for the nation. And he could become the guinea pig upon which we could pin all of these problems. Then the Roman authorities wouldn't come in and strip us of our power. That would be our excuse. And that's what he is saying. You see, what Caiaphas did and what the Pharisees do throughout the gospel narratives is that they use an elevated knowledge to justify secret plans. God told me. That's what they're saying. Well, we carry the Urim and the Thummim in the ephod. That sounds like something from sci-fi right there, like a whole other language, Right? But that's what they did. We, we have a secret knowledge that you people don't have. And you can see how they position themselves belligerently above them. Listen, friends, here is God's plan. That one man's death would serve as the propitiation for sin to satisfy divine wrath and righteousness. This is the gospel. This is the revelation of God. But religion took the revelation of God, mishandled it so that it could protect its own status and power over people. That's what's taking place here. This is the war of the ages. Friends, I want you to see for just a moment, I want to pause from the text, and I want you to see how it is that religion entangles and how it is that religion deceives. First of all, religion arises by mishandling God's revelation through his word. Listen, friends, Satan doesn't have a big bag of tricks, but the ones he uses, he's perfected. Just as in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, he's continued to use this one over and over and over again. And religion arises in the mishandling of God's revelation through his word. It originates in a skewed message by perverting God's word that says you need to earn your way to God. And you know what? That makes sense, doesn't it? You get what you earn in this world. What goes around comes around. I mean, this just makes total sense to the human mind. The problem is the human mind is depraved. And the way things work in this world aren't necessarily the way things work with God. The gospel tells us the proclamation of the riches of God that are freely bestowed on all who believe in Jesus. For God shows his love and acceptance in Jesus that we might believe and obey. Don't you think that the leaders of the people who were commissioned to, to interpret the times and interpret the revelations of God to point people to Jesus and even who had the instruments appointed by God to discern his will and to judge the people who had pointed to this man and yet they still missed him. Every sign pointed to Jesus. But when they didn't want to give up their status and power, there was no way they were going to release it. The second way that religion entangles and deceives is it not only arises by mishandling God's word, but religion thrives in power structures that are based on worldly values with unquestioned authority. The Pharisees rejected the witness to Jesus 
In other words, the God-appointed means, the God's revelation that aligned all the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament through which they operated. They rejected every witness to Jesus. Why? Because they had a secret knowledge that came only through their priestly duties. They had access to God. And they let it cause them to believe that in some way they themselves had become God. You see, the gospel tells us this. The gospel is God's mystery revealed. It's not knowledge concealed. And and in the gospel, it's not a, a secret of the few, right? But it is the knowledge of life for all who believe. That's the gospel, friends. And and religion is where man still mediates with man for God. But the gospel shattered that because when Christ was crucified, the scripture clearly tells us that the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the people was torn in two. It was rent. It for nevermore would be replaced. Why? Because God destroyed the barrier between him and and man and when a secret knowledge a concealed knowledge god told me when he hasn't told you when that is what is purported religion is thriving to put a power in a structure that's based on worldly values and cannot be questioned cannot be questioned but friends god alone is sovereign and he alone saves all who believe in Jesus Christ. This is very clear in the scripture. Every person will give an account before God for their life. And only those who are hidden with Christ in God will be saved from death's penalty. It's not about do you get the secret knowledge. It's not about does God give something to you he doesn't give to anybody else. It's not about an elevated status with God that you've achieved or earned or somehow arrived at. No, it's about where God arrived in the coming of Jesus Christ to us. To reveal to us God's love and God's grace for us. And then thirdly, religion exercises bloated power to guard its interest and to subjugate, entangle, and abuse people you see religions justified end well this is for their good always rationalizes its means and it uses fear intimidation and manipulation to serve its purposes oh and some of those intimidations and manipulation and fear factors are the sweetest kindest that you could imagine but they're subtle In the way that they lead you away from God. Here's what the gospel tells us. That Jesus came, what? Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. He willingly gave up his rightful glory to serve the Father's will for his glory. So when religion exercises a bloated power to guard its own interest and to subjugate, entangle, and abuse people, it's opposing the gospel. Friends, religion is death masquerading as life. That's all it is. The only way to defeat religion's empty, hollow deception is to look to Jesus for illuminating conviction and life-giving 
power. That's why I said, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the one that rolls the stone away. And I'm the one that brings life out of the dead grave. Go with me to verse 54. It tells us that Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Remember where he was? He was in Bethany at this point. That's where he encountered Martha and Mary and the Jews because of Lazarus, and that's where he called Lazarus forth from the grave, about two miles east of Jerusalem. Well, Ephraim is a number of miles north of Jerusalem. And, and remember, the disciples didn't want Jesus to go to Bethany because they would have to go to Jerusalem to get there. And the intensity of the Pharisees and the intentionality of them to kill him was so great that they didn't want to deal with it. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to go. And that's what he did. He walked right through Jerusalem to Bethany. And you know what they did? Nothing, because that's all they could do. Satan does nothing without permission. That's what you need to understand, friends. But Jesus, at this point, recognizing where he was in the purpose of God in his time on earth, goes back to Ephraim, and there he will teach and continue to minister. That's what John's telling us in verse 54. He no longer walked openly among the Jews. Friends, Jesus wasn't running scared. This was a calculated positioning for the time that was coming and appointed the disciples' concern was correct. The Jews wanted to kill him. But friends, religion holds no threat to Jesus. But hear me, it always distracts and separates from Jesus. Religion would be centered in Jerusalem. Jesus would be located in Ephraim. Even the geography of this story reminds us of the gospel. Jesus leads us in deeper communion with God that cleanses from religion's stronghold. Why is that so important? Because what was going on in Jerusalem at the time? Look at verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Friends, I'm going to tell you, before the CIA, before the FBI, before counterintelligence, there was the Pharisees. That There is no extent that they would not go to. And we see this in Scripture. If you wouldn't comply, they knew where your family lived. Religion knows no end, knows no bounds on its fear and intimidation in its methods. And that's exactly what the Pharisees do. Oh, you won't? Well, let me go talk to your parents because I know where they live. Let me go talk to your children. I know where they live. And what they didn't say is exactly what you knew they were saying to you. And that's the way that verse 57 leaves this. The chief priests and the Pharisees are given orders. Anybody that wanted to follow him could, but they would reach the same end that he would reach. Much chaos arose among the people. The questions were multiplying and, and the tension was intensifying. You see, friends, religion thrives in chaos. It thrives in chaos because here's why. It offers a quick solution of structured ritual to the chaos. It, it, it's a quick out. 
But all it really does is to deepen the chaos and to build the barrier that prevents true peace from coming in. Religion promises closeness to God, but the only one who can bring you close to God is always absent from dead religious practice. Here's what I mean. This was Passover. Passover was taking place in Jerusalem, the highest, holiest annual uh, celebration of the Jewish calendar. It was the celebration of God's salvation when the Jewish people or the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt. And the blood of the sacrificial lamb was to be painted over the doorpost so that when the angel of death moved through to kill the firstborn, those who were trusting in Jesus, who had painted the blood of the innocent lamb over the doorpost, would be passed over. And that's how Passover... So every year as they celebrated Passover... They were celebrating the salvation or the provision of God. It was given as a reminder, as a promise of God's salvation. It wasn't the practice of receiving it, but the promise of how God had provided it. But what religion had done was to strip its meaning from the practice and to put power into the empty ritual itself. So what the Pharisees were saying is, get back to Jerusalem. It's more important that you be in Jerusalem because it's Passover. Passover. Easter, got to go to church. It's Christmas. Supposed to be in church. Why? I don't know. Don't remember that part. You see, Passover was never meaningless, friends. But it was made meaningless by many in their hearts because they practiced it with no real meaning. That's religion. And the practices by which we demonstrate our faith always hold the temptation to steal our faith in Jesus just as every good gift can tempt us to love and worship the gift above Jesus as the giver. Think about the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper. What does it remind us of? We come to the table and it tells us that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and blessed it and he said, eat this for it's my body given for you. And then he took the cup in the same way and blessed it and he said, drink this, the blood of the covenant for I will not drink it again with you until I drink it in the new. He gave us a way to remember. The grace of God doesn't come through the cup and the bread. It's a remembrance of, but it is also a deepening of communion with him when we remember what he's done and what it reminds us of. But how often do we throw it down without thought of what God has done? You see, friends, exalting Jesus as alone worthy is the only reason we practice everything we do. Whatever we do that doesn't exalt, exalt Jesus should be immediately and automatically ceased and desisted. It's useless. It's become something that it was never meant to be. Friends, let me answer the question that the people ask. Will he come to the Passover? Actually, Jesus will come to the Passover feast, but not as they imagine. He willingly gave his life, not just to show up at Passover, but to become the Passover feast. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God that was crucified to become the cornerstone of life with God. That's what John is, is showing us here. He's the Lamb of God who gives all meaning to life with God. There is no meaning to life with God outside of Jesus. His sacrifice was once for all the propitiation for all who would believe. God proclaimed the gospel through the rituals and, and, and through the sacrifices and, and through the revelations and the prophecies. He proclaimed the gospel before he sent the gospel to take on flesh and blood. His promises that are given, beginning all the way in Genesis, and his prophecies that are reminders, they all point to the person of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to know about this Messiah who would come and just believe that he is, even if you just believe that Jesus is. Even the demons do this. So just to believe and in, in, in say that I believe in Jesus it, it, it does little more than, than the demons who knew he was the Son of God before the people in the world did. But rather believing in him is, is you must turn from your sin. You must forsake yourself and trust in him and in him alone. Not him plus, not him minus, but him alone. Until you completely forsake yourself, you will continue to forsake Jesus. Jesus only is the Lamb of God slain for salvation for all who believe in him. There's only one way to know that you believe in Jesus. And that is to build your life on him in every way. He is the cornerstone of life with God. He is the rock on which true life holds together. But when you give into religion, you build your life on shifting sands. That's why, listen to me, because religion uses all the same labels and titles. But that's why when life strikes and you feel devastated and you want to blame it on God, Instead of turning to God to ask and receive from him, I want you to know that's an inkling of religion remaining in you. It's in the heart, friends, long before it gets in the pew. And that's the danger. That's the warning that John is giving to us here. When you give in to religion, you build your life on shifting sands. Now I want to remind us of John's purpose for placing this chapter in the middle of his uh, gospel account. Remember, the, the events that take place in this chapter chronologically actually occur later. But John moves it here strategically because he's wanting to show how it is in these encounters with Jesus that he was exposing the limitations that people put on Jesus in their life. And what Jesus does is he identifies, reveals those limitations, brings conviction, you might say, and he calls us to believe in accordance with his revelation, not in accordance to our limitations on him. Martha, Mary, the Jews all said one thing. What did they say? Lord, if you had gotten here before he died, you could have done something about it. And Jesus said, I didn't come till after he died because I wanted you to understand I can still do something about it. You see? He shatters our limitations. And what Jesus is saying to us when we are confronted with the religion that remains in our heart is we are to believe fully in him according to the revelation of who he is, not the limitation that we've imposed upon him. 
Every time we limit Jesus' power in our lives, we choose the hollow religion of Jerusalem instead of following Jesus to the higher place of Ephraim that brings deeper communion with God. We choose the familiar. We choose the comfortable. We choose the accommodating. We choose the accomplishable. We choose the easy. Friends, religion leads to Jerusalem. Jesus calls us to follow him to Ephraim. And Jesus calls us to follow him out of religion's deception that we might walk in truth. I want to draw from the ways that religion entangles and deceives this morning and just make three brief applications to see how it is that religion kills relationship with Jesus. I said it once, I'll say it again, I'll probably repeat it after that. Religion begins in the human heart long before it permeates into the church. The only reason it gets into the church is because it walked in as a mole in our hearts. And if we're not careful, friends, because of sin's permeating presence in our broken nature and the war that continues within us, even as Christians, we will default to trust ourself even while Jesus is very near to us. You see, my application today is not just find a good church, not religion, but rather religion roots in the heart before it rules in the church. My application is for us to guard our heart from religion's entangling stronghold that leads us away from Jesus. Every time you live out of religion, you reveal and you propagate a death that is living in you. Look to Jesus and believe Enter into deeper communion with him. I want you to see these three ways that religion kills covenant relationship with Jesus and what you can do about it. Number one, religion kills relationship with Jesus when God's word gets neglected. How was God working in this passage? Same way he's always worked. He's revealed himself through his word. And he's brought his word in different ways. But friends, there is one way today that we have his word It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. It's not to be worshipped, but it is to point us to the one who is to be worshipped. And because of that, we should hold it in the highest regard. When God's Word is neglected, His revelation is diminished, and the wrong message gets embraced. The wrong message gets shift uh, of focus from Jesus' work for us to our work for God. You see, that's what religion does. It reverses God's revelation. Our practices begin by losing meaning to become rituals as a means of working to God. In other words, instead of practicing to remember what God did for us, we begin to rehearse it as the means of working ourselves to God. Our identity and our purpose and our belief are determined to them by what we do to get to God. And therefore, the glory returns to us because after all, we're the ones been doing all the work. That's what religion does in reversing God's revelation. When you diminish the meaning of your Christian practices, you always fail to look to Jesus in faith for worship. Rather, you just go there, got that done, check it off, move to the next. And maybe there's no place we do this more than with our time in the Word. Nothing makes us more dependent on dead ritual like the ignorance of God's Word. Nothing. Religion thrives in the ignorance of God's revelation, both in those with no knowledge and those who use knowledge to dismiss their need for Jesus. You'll find as much, hear me, religion in the intellectual elites as you will those who are absent of intellect. 
Biblical illiteracy is likely the biggest challenge and the greatest infection in the church today. That's not my opinion, friends. I'm citing scholars. I'm citing researchers. Barna, Gallup, they'll all tell you. It's the greatest ill in the church today. The Reformation, we just celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The reason I'm holding this in my hand today, the reason that God's word is for every person, and the reason we have a Bible is because 500 years ago, God worked to bring his word to every person. We have more resources in our hand today than those before ever have even had access to. I can access tens of thousands of resources in this hand through this instrument today. And yet simultaneously more connected, we're more deeply ignorant of the word of God. Friends, if you are not in the word, the word cannot get in you. And when the word of God is not in you, Christ is weak and religion is strengthening The absence of God's word in life makes your worship worthless. It makes your prayers selfishly vain. It starves your heart and it shrivels the mind. You can't even be fully human without the word of God. Every excuse for neglecting God's word is religion whispering to you. Just go back to Jerusalem. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. You can get through the day. Jesus invites us to Ephraim to feast on him in the revelation of his word. Friends, when you neglect God's word, you condemn your whole life to hollow religion. For relationship with Jesus and building your life on him as the cornerstone begins in his word. God's revelation, God's word, excuse me, is the revelation of life that crushes every ounce of religion in us. But worldliness remains because God's word is absent within. Here's the second way that religion kills relationship with Jesus. Religion kills relationship with Jesus when worldly values prevent abiding in Christ. Religion exalts the values that shift our priorities away from Christ to other centers, usually created out of crisis or urgency. And they're usually named by some selfish desire or want or things that we've labeled as a need. And we've deemed them as worthy. And they become a value to us. Therefore, they receive our priority. Religion keeps God close enough to satisfy some sense of obligation. But it always prevents that absolute Jesus is Lord. And when Christ is not Lord, everything that attempts to be will be threatened by him and will be threatened by his word and will seek to reduce and to remove him, at the very least to minimize him. That's why it's just inconvenient to spend time with God first thing in the morning. It's just inconvenient to give God enough time to really be able to speak. This book's so hard to understand. No, Shakespeare is hard to understand. I don't get it. Individualized Christianity, friends, is the most prevalent religious expression today. And it runs under the guise of Christianity. It subtly twists and replaces God's word with our thinking, our feeling, and our doing, depending on where your propensity falls. It's convenient, and it panders to our conveniences. 
But we rationalize, but God loves and forgives, so he'll excuse. No, friends, God does love and forgive. He propitiated. He does not excuse. You need to understand that. God doesn't just sweep it under the rug. He removes it. That's what it means in the gospel. By taking it on himself. We also say, well, I'm not doing anything wrong because surely God's satisfied with my life. He wants me to be happy, right? Individuality in Christianity perverts the gospel. It dismisses biblical commands. It redefines the values and meanings of life. And it elevates practices to prove ourselves so that we can just cover all the other damage. Because we know in our heart that the bad does outweigh the good in and of ourselves. Individualized Christianity gives me unbridled authority to live as we choose. And it uses Jesus for justification for worldly values. It perverts every aspect of biblical Christianity. Christian becomes a descriptive adjective instead of the defining object of my life. Unity in the church, keep me happy. Bible, let me go to those few verses that I love the most because they're easiest to use the way I want them to. Worship needs to address my issues and my point in life, though that's an ever-shifting issue because my life is moving. Community, y'all need to listen to me because I got something to talk about. Guess who it is? Me. Fix me. And then when you have kids, oh my goodness, Hundred times fold, man, you better fix these kids because I'm filling them with worldly values. I need you to undo what I keep doing. You transfer that responsibility. Individualized Christianity reduces Jesus to a kind of Clorox that gives regular but not too often cleansings from all my screw-ups. Wipe on, wipe off. Nothing aligns God's word with the world's values like religion. Nothing. The more worldliness that remains in you, the more worldly things appeal, allure, and control you because you live to satisfy those values and establish them as your priorities. Religion makes total sense in a mind and a heart that is ruled by worldly values. But friends, Christians reject running back to Jerusalem. Instead, we hear the call to go up to Ephraim, to sit at the feet of Jesus and to abide with him. He is our life. If there is nothing else, he is sufficient. Abiding in Christ cultivates the transforming power of Jesus to crush religion all the way to the core of our being. The reason we run to Ephraim is because we know Jerusalem has its hold on us. And we know it is damnation for our soul. The third way that religion kills relationship with Jesus is by filling life with activity that replaces purpose. Religion uses bloated power to guard its interests and to subjugate, entangle, and abuse people. And often we think about one person doing that to the other. But what I'm talking about is how we do it to ourselves. Of course, we've already replaced values and priorities because we've ceased abiding with Christ. But Jesus becomes the rationalization for using other things and people to serve me instead of laying my life down to serve others. We're seldom aware of how we use everything or disregard others because we stay removed. Religion values those that embrace our practices and dismisses those that reject them. Religion forces us back to Jerusalem because we got to hurry up and get the sacrifices made. I got to get home. I got things to do. Got people coming. 
You see, friends, Christians live distinctively as ambassadors for Jesus at all times. This is our purpose in the world. We live in rhythms and practices that cultivate growth and faithfulness to him. We exalt Jesus in gathered worship. We build Christ-centered community, and we faithfully testify that we might ready ourselves in season and out of season to welcome and to share with those who have yet to come to Christ and believe in him to bring them in. We live under a commission to serve Christ's kingdom and to spread his gospel to all people. Friends, every practice and every place of rhythm and every relationship with people that is not under the lordship of Jesus Christ is working against his lordship in your life. All of life is lived in obedience to Jesus' lordship as revealed in his word. Living as an ambassador of Jesus Christ defines the Christian life in every practice, in every place, and with all people. I can't think of a more appropriate reminder of the, the season in which we're in to not get caught up in the things that religion wants to strip our meaning and purpose from and make us think we've accomplished something because we've been hyperly active all the while. Let's pray.